Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon. I'm your host, Dean Finelli. Thank you for joining us today on Politics and Life Science Radio. I'm very happy today to have our special guest, Todd Furness. Todd is a uh, private equity consultant and has a lot of experience in senior level operating. He's also the author of the book, The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare. So uh, we'll talk to Todd in a few minutes. Before we speak with Todd, though, uh, let's catch up on what's going on in the life science industry. Uh, Pfizer looks like they will be submitting their application for full approval, their BLA application, to have their uh, vaccine approved by the FDA. As we know, the all the vaccines are, that are available in the U.S. are available under emergency use authorization, which, which technically means they're experimental uh, and in an authorization Uh, The FDA authorizes these vaccines, particularly in a pandemic situation, uh, and the standard is the benefits outweigh the risks. So here now with the full approval, that means the FDA will analyze all the data, six months worth of safety data. They'll look at it through a fine tooth comb. The FDA uh, will look at it on a quicker basis. Pfizer did submit this uh, for accelerated approval. So Uh, What that means generally as well is, you know, in the current situation, the pandemic situation, uh, if, for example, the Director of Health and Human Services, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services were to say the pandemic's over, all these authorized vaccines would have to stop being administered and stop being uh, to Americans. Uh, Under full approval, uh, Pfizer would be allowed to keep administering these and also be allowed to market these Uh, to consumers in the U.S. So uh, likely, given that almost 150 million people have gotten the Pfizer vaccine, likely it will be approved. Uh, It seems like it's very safe, and we know it's over 90% effective. So uh, looking like in the next six months we'll see that. Uh, I would expect Moderna would also uh, submit their application, their BLA, for approval as well. Um, We heard earlier this week President Biden said he was waiving patent rights. Uh, The World Trade Organization member states, when they joined the World Trade Organization, uh, part of the agreements that they sign up to, one of them is called the TRIPS Agreement, Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property, which means they would have minimal intellectual property rights that everyone as a member of the WTO would adhere to. Uh, the a lot of developing countries have been asking that patent rights be waived uh, to allow 
them to basically make the vaccine on their own. You know, to me, uh, as a patent attorney, I could tell you that this is really more symbolic than anything else. Uh, the patents that are out there, there are many patents that cover the genetic material that's in these vaccines, the delivery system that's, that are in these vaccines, the combination, uh, the procedures that are used to combine them. And these patents are legal documents. They're not scientific journals. They're not written that way as a recipe uh, to teach people how to make uh, the vaccines on a commercial scale in a clinical manner that's safe to administer to humans. So I think, you know, by doing this, this is more a symbolic measure than a substantive measure. This certainly, at least in my opinion, will not get vaccines to the developing country. I think if we want to do that, uh, the way to do that is, you know, the U.S. needs to take a leadership role and have the currently authorized manufacturers scale up in the U.S. and work with foreign countries to have these vaccines then shipped there from here. So uh, we'll see how this plays out. Um, certainly we see what's going on in India. It's really a catastrophe, catastrophe over there. And frankly, I think, you know, we're all frustrated with Dr. Fauci. We raise our hands in the air as if he has some magic wand where he could just make this all better. But I think, you know, when you look at what's going on in India, this is really uh, why the CDC and FDA act the way they do. You know, this things can go sideways very quickly. The, India was really doing a tremendous job. If anyone has been to Indi India, they know it's a very crowded country. It doesn't have the infrastructure, especially the healthcare infrastructure that we have here. Uh, yet, up until the end of 2020, they were doing a really good job with social distancing, uh, getting having people wear masks. Uh, they really let things go there. They let their guard down instead of doubling down and making sure their public was vaccinated. They started shipping vaccines out and, of the country and using this as uh, diplomatic means. They also had people attending mass gatherings uh, for political reasons as well as religious uh, mass gatherings. So now we're seeing kind of the results of that. So that's kind of really what keeps the CDC and FDA up at night, that these things you know, you think you're moving in the right direction, uh, and things can go sideways. Here in the U.S., uh, we're in a much different situation. We have about half the country that's vaccinated, at least with one shot. Uh, about a third of the country is fully vaccinated. We have people that have natural immunity. Uh, and most importantly, the most high-risk group of people, the highest-risk people, over 65, uh, the majority of those individuals are vaccinated. So the U.S., it doesn't look like even if things went a little bit uh, sideways here, we'd probably not get in a situation that like India. Uh, I think we are handling it in the right way. Uh, we may not hit this magic number of 70 to 85 percent for herd immunity. But again, herd immunity, really what we're looking for there is slowing down the transmission. So I don't think looking at vaccines alone is the proper measure to say whether we're going to hit herd immunity. I think sometime this summer, uh, we'll be in good shape to open up the country fully and get back to really normal. But getting back to normal uh, definitely is in quotes because, you know, unless the globe is vaccinated and the global economy gets back to normal, the U.S. is still probably not going to be getting back to normal anytime soon, or at least normal as we're used to it. Uh, I'd like to bring on our guest now on Politics and Life Science Radio, uh, Mr. Todd Furness. Todd 
is, as I mentioned, a uh, private equity consultant and uh, has experience at the senior level as an operating executive. He's currently the CEO of GTC Group, and he's also authored uh, a book, The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare, uh, and he's the host of a podcast called Civil Discourse. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, just one clarification. I'm actually a principal investor in, through GTC.group or GTC Group. Uh, we, we don't consult to companies. We just invest in them. Hopefully we make a good return, but we'll see. Thank you for clarifying, clarifying that. So in your book, The 60% Solution, uh, you talk about how to improve the availability and affordability of healthcare. I mean, that, that's obviously a huge issue in this country. You know, we're always talking about seniors crossing the border into Canada to get health care or even worse, foregoing uh, medication uh, for food and other essentials. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what's the biggest issue facing the healthcare industry today? Well, thank you so much for asking that question because I think it's, it's the right question to ask. And I think the answer is, in legal terms, I, I share your background as being a lawyer, uh, privity of contract, and that leads to consumerism. And so when you take a look at what's going on right now, you have a, a bunch of people in the payment model all at the same time. So we have commercial regulation, we have government regulation, all influ influencing and informing payment decisions. So for example, if you go to the doctor, the first question you're gonna ask is, okay, what's my deductible or what's my copay? And the reason for that is because you likely have insurance through your employer. Well. That means that the insurance company gets to Im include what I call commercial regulations or protocols that they can guide or dictate to the doctor if they want to get reimbursed. And uh, then you, of course, have the government regulations. So it becomes a real uh, overhead-driven morass of problems when it comes to things like privy of contract. Who does the doctor actually work for? Are they working for the carrier for whom they are in network or are they working for the patient? And it's not always an easy answer. So I think that's the number one issue. And so a lot of the book I, in a lot of the book I talk about how to drive back to a direct relationship with the provider of the service by the patient. I think it reduces costs, but also the act of paying someone directly is a manifestation of a whole bunch of decisions, including moral decisions and educational transfer and information transfer. I'll give, and if you would allow me to do so, I could blend that straight into the problems with the American Families Plan just issued by Biden, where he could make it a lot more impactful if he just did certain things differently. Please, yes, I think that's that's really an important issue because when we look at, you know, we hear uh, 10 years ago about with the Affordable Care Act, and now we hear talk by some members of Congress about having uh, Medicare for all. And, you know, I think a lot of these terms get thrown out there, but most people just don't have any idea uh, what they mean. You know, can you kind of elaborate on, you know, some of the fundamentals of what these these different terms mean? You bet. So when we talk about Medicare for all or, or some sort of a single payer system, what we're really talking about doing is having the government pay for either directly or directly the services rendered by a, a healthcare provider. 
And that creates, from my perspective, a whole lot of problems in terms of consolidation of power and authority. You never want to have the decision-making body and the economic uh, interest combined into one. I think that becomes problematic. We see that, for example, right now because insurance companies are buying physician practices. United Healthcare today employs more than 50,000 physicians and is gobbling up physician practices uh, every day. So the question is, when you go see the doctor, are you seeing the doctor who's operating in an independent capacity or are you seeing a doctor who's working for the insurance company to whom you also pay your premium? But an example of how the American Families Plan could be executed better, in my view, would be to say, look, let's take all these value transfers, right? So cash payments and tax credits and the like, and rather than give that to uh, in the form of credits or to other in, into other forms of transfer, why don't we put that into HSAs, health savings accounts? If we did that, then the money that goes into the health savings accounts could be used more broadly and would be put into the account in a tax-advantaged way, could be retained in the account, and any earnings from, from investments would be tax-advantaged. And then what happens is when you make a health a care expenditure payment, that's tax-advantaged. So if we just did that, all of a sudden now you're putting the individual consumer in the driver's seat to determine what their needs are and how to pay for it and also give them negotiating power. I like to say if I had the opportunity to give 100 million soccer moms $10,000 at the beginning of the year and say at the end of the year you get to keep whatever's left over, which is what happens today in health savings accounts, then you'd have a whole different model for the industry because those soccer moms would be really focus on how they're spending every one of those dollars and, and they would keep the, a lot of those dollars from year to year. So it sounds like a lot of, you know, there's just so much waste and so many uh, like transactional costs in between here. Is that, is that the way, where do you see a lot of the, this biggest waste that we we're currently seeing? Cause healthcare, you know, it's it, literally for me, it's gone up in the last 10 years. It seems like a hundred percent, but uh, I do get it from my employer, employer so I'm, I'm lucky in that regard. But I, I do feel like there's just so much waste there that, you know, you go to the doctor today and the, the level of service may be there, but it doesn't seem like it should cost double what it cost five or ten years ago. It could, it shouldn't, and you're absolutely right. In every other industry, you see healthcare costs. I mean, you see costs for goods and services go down on a relative basis. And you work for one of the most prominent firms in the world. It's a fantastic firm. I know it well. Uh, but you're absolutely right in terms of the overhead costs that are involved in the transaction price. But you have another problem, which we have all sorts of economic incentives that discourage, oddly enough, a reduction in the cost of healthcare. What most people don't realize is that a goodly portion of states require that state departments of insurance approve of the premiums that companies pay for insurance costs or insurance premiums. So let me explain what that means. So if you said I'm a mid-sized firm in, uh, in Virginia and I'm going to buy my health care uh, from a broker who then gets it from a carrier who then gets the premiums established by the Department of Insurance, then you obviously see quickly that the company who is buying the insurance has no way of negotiating in earnest the price because the price has been established by the Department of Insurance. What goes on further is that the insurance companies, for example, with hospitals, 
they actually don't pay a price per se. They pay, they pay a percentage of what's known as gross build charges. So the incentive then for the hospital is to encourage every single thing possible to go on that invoice because making it up 40% of gross build charges, if the gross build charges is $1,000 is better than 40% of gross build charges at $100. And so then what happens is over time, you take a look at the costs incurred by the insurance company and the loss ratios that are dictated by the state. And so, gosh, you know, my costs have gone up. I've, I've got to charge a higher premium. And so year over year, premiums go up instead of going down. We are talking with Mr. Todd Furness, author of The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare. These are really just issues that, you know, aren't really subjective. They, they affect quite literally pretty much every American. And when we think about healthcare, we kind of encompass it with, our health, going to the hospital, going to the doctor, going to drugs. But, you know, our, our drug prices, is this a whole separate thing or is this somehow related to the, what you're talking about when it relates to health care as well? Now, that's another piece of it. And it gets complicated further by uh, language, and as you know better than me, language in the regs that dictate that the U.S. federal government can't, can't negotiate prices directly with big pharma. Um, but that doesn't make any walking around sense. Uh, but what will happen, oddly enough, is in, increasingly what happens is that if you are willing to pay cash in, uh, for the drug, it frequently costs less than your deductible. And that doesn't make any sense. But I, I note with interest what Amazon's done. I think one of the biggest uh, trends and uh, the biggest things that's happened in the insur insurance industry and the healthcare industry more broadly is Amazon entering the pharmacy marketplace. That to me is a big deal. Uh, now, what happens with Amazon is when you go in and enter your insurance number, they may say, well, we don't have a relationship with that carrier yet, so therefore you can pay cash for this drug if you want to. Otherwise, it may take some time for us to get back to you on whether or not it's covered by your insurance carrier under, under your policy. Well, I, I'm impatient, and so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna say, sure, I'm happy to pay that. Now, by the way, what's the price? And you find out that the price is less than it would have been if, if, in many instances than your deductible or your copay. So what they're ultimately doing is they're encouraging you not to go through insurance to get payment. They're encouraging you to go straight and just pay cash or use your credit card, which makes more sense. It's a much more efficient transaction. How do you think that Amazon getting into this do you think overall it's going to have a huge impact, as you suggested, or do you think uh, it'll, it will, in the long run, drive prices down? It will both drive prices down and be an a big impact. I think the question of whether or not Amazon wants to get into compounding is going to be a whole other issue. I think that's far more complicated. But I think it, it spells trouble for a lot of the uh, drugstores and pharmacies that we see around the country, particularly the small ones that are not compounding pharmacies. Interesting. The, the last question I have for you, I know you're busy, Todd, before I let you go. If you look in your crystal ball, where do you see healthcare in the next six months, year, three years, five years? Well, I think unless, you know, guys like you can, can help us with providing leadership in the industry, it's only going to skyrocket in cost. It's not going to get any better. We have to have real agents for change. 
I'll give you one more quick example. Right now, we have a regressive tax policy that allows companies to uh, deduct as a business expense the cost of benefits. So Cooley uh, deducts your, your co the cost of your insurance as a benefit. And that dates back to FDR in 1943, 1944. And it's a regressive tax in nature. But what would happen if we said, okay, that's now taxable income to the recipient of the benefit? We'd put about a half a billion dollars into the U.S. Treasury. And we would create a whole different view of healthcare insurance. I think that would be wildly advantageous and spur a lot more consumerism in the marketplace. So I think until we get some, we tackle some big issues like that, we're going to have a problem well into the future that can't be resolved by mere mortals. Do you think with the Democratic Party having control of both houses and the presidency, we see uh, changes to health care, uh, particularly with regard to Medicare for all or single, pay single payer? Well, I think there's a possibility that my concern is not whether or not we have a change, it's whether or not we have a change that actually encourages the right behaviors. So, for example, if we said, all right, we're going to tax benefits, that's a change. But I think if we did that, it would encourage the right kinds of behaviors. If we had a benefit, I mean, a change that says we're going to increase the flexibility and improve the flexibility of health savings accounts, I think that's a good thing. If we allow people to put more money into those accounts and then link them back to the deductibles of their insurance premiums, I think that's a good thing. But if we say, hey, we're going to go down the path of single payer and that all of a sudden we found a new constitutional right that's been afforded to Americans called health care. And it's really not health care. What they're really saying is you have a constitutional right to health indifferent to what the individual behavior of the uh, of of the citizen is, I think that's the wrong thing to do. I think we need to encourage people to take responsibility for their own health and their own health care, encourage preventive contract, and then acknowledge people rightly or wrongly for the actions that they're taking. Todd, thank you so much for your time today. A lot of great information to think about. Uh, appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and keep up the leadership. I really appreciate your podcasting. Thank you. We have spoke with Todd Furness today on Politics and Life Science Radio. Check out Todd's book, The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare. A lot of important issues and a lot of great things to think about. Thank you for joining us today on Politics and Life Science Radio. This is Dean Finelli. Appreciate the time, and we will be back with you again shortly. Uh, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences.